Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. We are going to jump right in. We're going to jump right in, guys, because we have a lot of stuff to get through. You might as well put your pocket protectors on and your nerd glasses on because we're jumping straight back in to that, okay? So, uh, yes, Sean and Amanda Dick are here with their kids. You guys are killing me. You want to know what took so long with greeting before? Amanda. Okay, that's what took so long with greeting before. Anyway. Okay, guys, we're going to jump right into this. The first thing that, though, in, in jumping into this is I want, to, I want to recap on why this series or these three legs of this series in Genesis, Genesis matter. Um, it matters because we are, again, dealing with uh, an ever-increasingly skeptical culture. How many of you know that? We're dealing with a culture that is growing in its skepticism, growing in its understandings of different things. Listen, guys, some of this is good and some of this is bad, but uh, in many ways, there's more information uh, given to us or available to us than ever before in human history, and we're able to hear an expert on this and an expert on that, on all kinds of different things. And so people are pursuing worldviews and ideas uh, as fast as they come out, and the Christian needs to be able to explain and express their worldview um, in a coherent manner, uh, as well as be able to talk to this generation, this culture, uh, according to the questions they're asking, right? We need, to, we need to be able to respond to people based on the actual questions they're asking. If somebody was to come up to you in this culture and say, I need an explanation for how this happened, and your response is, the Bible tells me so, you are going to lose them. You're going to lose them because they don't even care about your book to begin with, right? See, one of the things that Christians have struggled with is that we think that taking somebody from uh, unbelief to belief in Jesus is the natural step. But that's a, that's a massive jump. How many of you know that? The first jump is unbelief or uh, atheism, like something that is not theistic, to theism to believing that something or someone created the cosmos. After that, getting them to jump to the Christian faith is a very, very big jump. And it takes time. It takes discipleship. It takes explaining. It takes de debating worldviews and concepts and ideas. And so one of the reasons for this series, or the main reason for this series, I suppose, is to answer questions in a coherent manner. To give you guys the tools necessary to speak to the world that you're speaking to without just telling them, the Bible tells me so. We'll start with the beginning of things and we'll keep moving forward. As far as we are as Christians, we need to understand our own worldview. So that is another key part of this. Last week was a very, um, I suppose you would just uh, categorize it as a more academic message. And today is going to be the same. But I want to give you some consolation. Not every week is going to be like this. Okay, we are, we are going to be dealing with very practical things. I believe that these academic things are practical. But I don't want you to, to feel like it's always going to be three miles deep uh, with regard to these concepts. But I do want you to know that the next generation is a very academic generation. They're not settling for simple answers. They just aren't, okay? They don't care what your grandma taught you. They don't care what your dad taught you. And they, whether this is controversial to you, they don't care what the Bible says, they want to know something that makes sense. Now, I believe that comes from the Bible. But it, it requires engaging with them in a very real way. So, uh, last week was academic. It's not always going to be that way, but the next generation is asking for academic things. Consolation is that it won't always be this way for the Sunday messages. But I want to thank each and every one of you for working with me because it's been a great response already. I have had... A myriad of questions and ideas and responses. And by the way, 
even though I told you guys by the looks on your faces I was going to be attacked and killed, nothing has been negative. So that's been really awesome, right? It's, it, nothing has been negative. So it's been really good for us to work through this. So thank you, and thank you for your questions. Barna Research coined the phrase syncretists when it came to this generation uh, with regard to worldview because this generation is putting together all kinds of different worldviews to make sense of what they see around them, right? And when they go to Christianity as the only uh, basis for a worldview, they find Christianity wanting. But here is what they're finding. They're finding our answers wanting. Christianity is not wanting. The scripture is not wanting. The truth is not wanting. Our understanding of those things is in many ways. And unless we grow and unless we understand how to explain things, we're going to continue to uh, lose this generation to other things that they believe make more sense to them. The truth, though, is that this goes beyond our generation. Last week, Bill Wheatley came up to me, and he gave me a big hug, and he said, Nathan, I just want you to know that you made connections in this week's message that I've been wondering all my life. And Bill is in his 80s. Bill has been wondering these things for a very long time. He's not some, pardon me, uh, millennials. He's not some punk millennial. <laughs> I meant that completely. Anyway, <laughs> right? He's, he's, not, he's not some millennial that is just trying to, uh, uh, as we think they are, trying to just challenge the system. He's just a guy who wants to know the answers to things. Allison Syvertson came up to me and she said, uh, I have been wanting to sit down with you and ask you questions along these lines for a very long time because you know how I was raised, you know what I was taught, and I just appreciate you handling this issue and engaging with this. I also had somebody in, uh, in my relationship circle that I wanted to ask some serious questions of, uh, questions that put her, she is definitely in the, in the younger of all three of those, or uh, of those two. She's the youngest of them, and she struggles with worldview, and she struggles with Christianity, and she struggles with the biblical accounts. And I want to give you some questions that I asked her, and then I want to give you some answers that she gave. And the reason why I want to give you these answers is not because you guys just need to deal with this. I want you to realize what real people are saying in real ways, okay? Okay, question number one. What are your views on the Bible and its assertions regarding origins of the universe, humanity, and morality? Here was her response. I think Christianity is as good a theory as any to how such things came to be. I don't believe any person can truly know how it all came to be and for what reason it did. Anyone who says they really know is lying. I believe that anything is possible and that with how little we truly know of the universe, there is a chance that the way Christians view it all, uh, view it all and make sense of it all is correct. However, I have no reason to believe in it. It has never been proven to me as to why it is the right theory rather than just another theory. Remember what I just said? Theism to Christianity is a hard thing to jump to, but it's a journey we need to go on. All of the fallacies that I have seen in Christianity has been met with, well, God is unknowable and we are not meant to understand. Guess what this culture is looking for? Answers. And it's a mystery, doesn't cut it, right? The moment that I hear a cop-out of logic such as this is the moment I lose interest. It makes sense to say such a thing to another Christian because Christians already have reason to believe what they believe. But for a non-Christian, as myself, I see it as an easy way out of difficult questions. By the way, guys, that answer is an indictment. And it's not an indictment against me only. It's an indictment against every person in this room. If, if we're not providing those answers, this person is looking at us and saying, you've been found wanting. Sorry. Sounds like nonsense to me. 
Question number two, what elements of the Bible do you accept within your worldview? Again, syncretist, right? I'm looking at this thinking, yeah, there's some things. Generally, the answer goes, generally I've taken the ideals of being a good person, love thy neighbor and the like, and applied them in my life in, uh, and in my worldview. However, I don't necessarily attribute my desire to be a good human being and knowing how to do it to my Christian upbringing, but rather view it as an intrinsic quality most humans share. We all know that this is not true, that people uh, intrinsically are good, but this person's actually saying that I think people intrinsically are longing for that or searching for that. If you boil all religions down to their core, you will find that they are all attempting to teach humans how to be better. Each religion gives its own reasons as to why and to what end. But if there is only one true religion, what about all the other ones that were, that were invented? They all teach similar values of caring for yourself, caring for others, and what is right and wrong. And all of those things are debatable, but you have to have conversations with people, right? Therefore, humans must each have some inherent understanding of morality outside of religion. So I don't believe it is necessary for me in my life to take anything from the Bible, seeing as apart from the morality, it is all the Christian understanding as to how the world came to be and the way in which it works. It has never been proven to me as to why the Christian way is the right way. So there is no reason for me to take it into my life. Do you hear the cry in that last statement? The cry is for proof. The cry is for knowing. And all that's been presented to this person, at least based on what you would see in this answer, is propositional knowing. Here are the facts about Christianity. And how many of you know that's not the knowing the world is looking for all the time? We may love propositional truths, but you won't prove God by propositional truths only. You need uh, participatory knowing, right? You need perspectival knowing. You need to see things from a vantage point of a fallen person. You need those things. Otherwise, it's not going to make any sense, and you're just going to push the idea off. Question number three, what is your general view of Christians? You guys ready? Buckle up. As individuals, there are many Christians that I love and care for. As a whole, however, I do not much care for Christians. I have a negative view on the majority of Christianity. For generations, Christians have employed fear-mongering to gain control over others. That has not changed in today's world. It has simply taken on other forms. I am sick and I am tired of Christians as the minority thinking that they have the right to decide what is best for the majority. Practice as you please, but do not shove your faith down my throat as though you are doing right by me by doing so. Give your opinions, but do not force those who do not believe to do as you command. Why should we care about your God in which we do not believe? Why should we listen to you when you tell us all the things we are doing wrong when you have no proof, proof, as to why we should change other, uh, change other than because Jesus said so? Many Christians want to force their religion on people to have control over them, and that disgusts me. You will not create the faithful by force. You will merely create pretenders who simply want to survive under your regime. That's brutal, guys. That's brutal, but it's true. Christianity is not about Christ. It has turned into politics. It has turned into hatred. And it has turned into control. I believe many Christians use their religion as an excuse for their own prejudices. They hide behind their God as they spread hatred and anger and call it justice. Was it not Jesus himself who said that should the people not accept the gospel to wipe off your sandals, clean and move on and preach to those who will? I see Christians and I think if there is a God, he must be ashamed to have these such people spreading his word through fear and control and anger. He must be ashamed to see these people who call themselves his twist his words to validate their own beliefs rather than learn what his words truly mean. 
Why can a man not love another man? Now, of course, you knew that one was coming. Why can a woman not love another woman? But as the core of the question, it needs to be answered with far more than because the Bible says not to, right? She goes on. Because the Lord hath commanded it be so. I love the mockery there. That's fun. I'm sorry, but that is simply not good enough for the rest of us. Think as you will, believe what you think you must, but do not create legislation on increasingly dated worldviews and take away human rights because of your religion. It is not your right to dictate what humanity can and cannot do. All you can do is advise and live your lives according to what you believe. You will change no minds through control. I see no love from Christians. I see only hate and hypocrisy. I understand that not all Christians are this way, but there's enough of them to make me never want to believe in a God associated with Christianity as it is now. If the Lord they preach about is truly what they describe him to be, then he is a cruel God, and I would rather burn in the pits of hell for all eternity than worship such a deity. Isn't that crazy? Is that unbelievable? You know what I love about that? Somebody's honest. I like honesty. You know what else I like about this? Reading it to you so that you see actual answers. Instead of plugging our ears, hiding in the church, and acting like nothing's wrong. The church is asking, or the world is asking the church questions. And the church is going... There's so much wrong in your answers, I just don't even want to talk to you. <laughs> Good for you. That's an absurdly small-minded view of those answers. These answers are hard. These answers are pointed right at us. And we've got to do something about those answers. Otherwise, we're going to have a problem. So what is the point of the series? Again, to answer questions like this. To answer questions as to morality and worldview and origins and what man is and what man is not and who God really is and who God is not and what God's answers are versus the answers we've manipulated them to be, right? And we've done a lot of that, by the way. We have done a lot of that. And because of that, people are scratching their heads and people are responding with questions like that. So, while I get to teach these lessons, I also get to have conversations with people like this. And I'm excited to have conversations where I can look at somebody and they don't hate me. And they don't go, Christian. They go, I'd love to have an answer that makes sense. And so I'll try to answer those questions. And I will wade through that muck and that mire all the days of my life, as should you. Otherwise, we might as well just surrender now. <laughs> might as well just turn America over to chaos. What the heck? doesn't matter. We're just going to believe what we want to believe, and we don't have to justify anything. We do. We do. We're called to this. I want to caution you when you engage with people like this to know that these people aren't questioning the Bible because they hate God necessarily. They may have grown to it. But it's not because they hated God to begin with. Some are, as Barna points out, synchronizing their worldviews. They're just looking at it going, sorry, Christianity sounds dumb on this, but I'm going to go with this. Okay? But the truth also is that some are simply synchronizing their belief, especially when we talk about origins. They're synchronizing their belief with what they observe, with what they see in the world all around them. Which brings us to a really important reminder about... Uh, discussions like this and the Christian faith, what we talk about regarding faith. Faith is defined by the scripture and faith is not blind. Please hear me, church. I've said this till I'm blue in the face. You've heard it. You might be tired of it, but everybody needs the reminder. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith means faith has substance and faith has evidence. 
There is no such thing as I believe in something that I don't understand or cannot prove or any of those things, but I'm just going to keep crossing my fingers and hoping it's true. That is wishful thinking at best. This is what we call blind faith. Faith is not blind, although you may not always see what you trust in, but it has evidence and it has proof, okay? So first of all, faith has a definition. It has evidence. It has justification for it, right? It is not blind. Nowhere in the Bible are you told to jump and let the net appear, and that's just a metaphor for the way we do things. Why do you believe in this? Well, I don't know, but I just believe in it. I just believe in it. Nonsense. Not good enough. You're not allowed. Yeah, I told you that. You're not allowed. Because somebody's going to call you on it someday. You might as well have somebody who actually loves you call you on it. Right? You're not allowed to just go, well, I believe it. Doesn't matter what anybody says. Well, good. Then you're then you just deny evidence or you deny the fact that you need evidence, right? We are not a people of blind faith. We are a people of true trust, right? True trust in God. And that is what he says, we see the evidence of it, all of those things. Now, are all pieces of evidence accepted by all people? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. People in a court of law can present their evidence. It might be true. And the defense goes, no way. Or the prosecution says, no way. We don't believe it. The jury split because they don't accept the same evidence, right? It's always possible. That's going to happen. Take a deep breath. It's okay, right? But don't break the relationship just because somebody doesn't accept your evidence. Push forward in it. Let me give you a couple of quotes, and they're going to fit in with what I'm going to talk about here in just a second. Because what I just did was just the intro, sorry. Okay, first quote is from a very well-known atheist, Bertrand Russell. Listen to this quote. This is a guy who, for the longest time in his life, struggled with certainty and absolutes, but at one point had to come to the truth. And here's what he said. Certainly, there are degrees of certainty. I love the point there. Certainly, there are degrees of certainty, and one should be very careful to emphasize that fact, because otherwise, one is landed in an utter skepticism. And complete skepticism would, of course, be totally barren and completely useless. Have you ever met somebody that is just absurdly skeptical, like of everything? And you're like, well, how is that fun, right? Nothing is true. It doesn't matter. Nobody can prove anything. Wow, that's miserable. That's really fun, right? Bertrand Russell looks at this and says, I just want you to know there has to be measures of certainty. Back to faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. There are certainties in faith. It's not blind. Otherwise, you might as well just call it skepticism, and it's useless. Again, the next one is from uh, a thinker, Thomas Sowell, and I just I love this statement. And this statement's going to really punch us in the nose regarding the sermon today. It is bad enough that so many people believe things without any evidence. What is worse... Okay, it's one thing without evidence. What is worse is that some people have no conception of evidence and regard facts as just someone else's opinion. You ever had that conversation? Here's an absolute fact, two plus two is four. That's just your opinion. Nobody says that about math, right? <laughs> right? But we do this about all manner of other things. We've done this with our observations of the cosmos, we've done this with science, we've done this with language, we've done this with so many things, okay? So I want those two uh, quotes to marinate in your mind. There has to be a level of certainty, and even though there is evidence and a level of certainty, some people just disregard facts because they view it as someone else's opinion. So when we talk about Genesis 1, 1 through 3, we're dealing with something that is very complicated. We're dealing with something that most people would go, can't we get one sentence, one chapter into the Bible without controversy? And the answer is no, you can't. But it's not because God is hard to understand. It's because we are 2,000 plus years removed from original languages. And that's hard. It's already hard for us to get from one language to another and make a word make sense. 
right? It's really a complicated thing to get language to work. So we need to understand what is happening in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, in order for us to really gain a right perspective. I'm going to go through some terms here. It's going to be on your cards. You can fill out the blanks as we go with this. The first one is the definition of an independent clause. An independent clause is a grammatically complete thought. A grammatically complete thought. So I'm going to go to a translation of Genesis. <laughs> the, the Bible app just asked me if I loved it and I accidentally hit no. I don't... I don't, I don't know what that says of me, Nathan. This is bad. The preacher doesn't like it. Anyway, okay. Okay. So the idea of an independent clause, a grammatically complete thought. Many translators have translated Genesis 1-1 this way, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. And their assertion is that that is a grammatically complete thought. That what follows it is just more information, but it's not, it's not relevant, Okay. Then there is the second definition on your, on your paper, a dependent clause. So the first is an independent clause. The second is a dependent clause is a group of words that don't express a complete thought. Okay? And this is where we get into some interpretations of Genesis 1, 1 through 3. For example, an independent clause would render, can render, Genesis 1, 1 through 3 Verse 2 being parenthetical, which is to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, no period, just a giant parenthesis that says the earth was formless and void. How many of you know that's common in language? We do this all the time, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, by the way, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. So this is what a dependent clause is. Here's where the challenge comes into biblical interpretation. While people are arguing independent versus dependent clauses alone, which brings us to questions like, well, why did we insert or imply the definite article, the word the, which we talked about in ridiculous form last week, the, in countless other cases in the Bible, but it doesn't appear or we're not allowed to imply it in Genesis 1.1. The answer is that this set of verses, like the hundreds of parallel examples, hundreds of parallel examples, and listen to me, in which zero of them deviate from this rule, hundreds of parallel examples found by Robert Homestead and his colleagues is actually what is called a restrictive relative clause. A restrictive relative clause. This is the third thing on your card. A restrictive relative clause is one that gives essential information that defines a corresponding noun or noun phrase. For the simpler version of this, we would say something like noun bound to clause statement. But it is a restrictive relative clause. Let me give you an example of this. This will be on the screen. Students who study hard will do well in this class. Restrictive relative clause. What's the restriction in this? Those who study hard. Because this is not true. Students will do well in this class. How many of you felt that way when you went to school, right? This student ain't going to do well in this class, right? But students who study hard will do well in this class. This is very different right, then all students will do well. This is a restriction. The first restricts which students that we're talking about, okay? Likewise, in Genesis 1-1, it is also a restrictive relative clause. The phrase, God created the heavens and the earth, merely helps to define what type of beginning the author has in mind, but not the absolute beginning, okay? Now, I am 100% willing, and I'm, I'm walking through this now with, with disagreements on this. It's perfectly fine. I'm great with this. Here's what I want you to realize. Grammarians have studied language and continue to study it, and they understand it better and better and better and better. Right? This is good for us. 
to increase in our understanding and to grow stronger in our understanding of how languages work. Not to go back to the beginning and say, no, it must work the only way I understand it. That would say that advancement and learning stops, right? So Hebrew grammarians are looking at this and they're seeing all of this. That God created the heavens and the earth helps to define what type of beginning, in beginning, which presents a very strange English reading, the author has in mind. This is not the absolute beginning. It's merely that beginning in which God created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's where this gets really hard. And back to this weird Thomas Sowell quote that says, what is worse is that some people have no conception of evidence and regard facts as just someone else's opinions. This is why scholars now are saying these kinds of bold things. The rules governing such clauses are nothing short of grammatical laws without exception. That's hard to hear, isn't it? This is why... Robert Homestead writes so boldly, the traditional translation of Genesis 1-1 is grammatically indefensible, period, end of story. How many of you love when somebody just says, sorry, your argument's wrong and I don't want to hear anything else? None of us like that. There are times when that has to happen. But this is what grammarians are seeing in this. There are all manner of arguments, and we're going to get into a couple of them here in a second. All manner of arguments. But these are where we get sticky. This is where we start having to understand this. You might say, so what does this even mean? What does this matter, Nathan? And better yet, why does it matter? First, it renders Genesis 1, 1 through 3, something like this. When God began, this is on your card as well. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, parenthetical statement, the earth being formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And a wind of God was fluttering over the face of the waters. Some might even get challenged by this version of wind also with spirit. Same word. God said, verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. So that is first what it means, or what this restrictive relative clause would make that statement mean. And better yet, why does it matter? Whether you agree or not with recent discoveries in science, the Bible, according to Hebrew grammar, has no problem with the concept of an old earth. As a matter of fact, according to these people, and every bit of my understanding is built on the back of somebody smarter than me and somebody who's gone before me, Hebrew grammar has no problem with an old earth. As a matter of fact, it seems to support the notion implicitly. Or explicitly. Okay. So we have a case within Hebrew grammar that this is the idea. So you have skeptics, and they're looking at this, and they're saying, I think your worldview is junk, because I think you guys keep saying that, that all of this is small potatoes, it's young, there's all this stuff. I don't see that, and science says you're, you're wrong. Now, does that mean we should just accept them? Accept their criticism? No, of course not. Doesn't mean that at all. And here's my question to you. Does it mean when we challenge these things that we're compromising with science? Not at all. You are performing what is called a slippery slope fallacy. Oh, if you just go a little, you'll fall all the way. No, not true, right? But the world is still asking the question. The world is still going, it doesn't make sense. Everything around me is telling me this, but you keep telling me that. Here's my personal view. My personal view is that I believe that the earth, this is contrary to the way I was raised, contrary to the, the view I held for many, many, many years. I believe that the earth is old. I believe it's a lot old. But guess what? Here's my other view. If somebody can come to me and prove that it's only 6,000 years old, I'll take that view too. Because it doesn't flip and matter to me. Here's why it doesn't matter to me. I still believe the same God created it. I still believe the same God made the heavens and the earth. I still believe the same God is the one who gave me his son to die for my sins. And I also believe firmly that the gospel is not hinged on Genesis 1. The gospel is hinged on Jesus Christ and none other. Okay? That is my view. 
I, I'm good with people disagreeing with it. But I want you to understand where I see it and why it matters, especially with a skeptical world. Okay? And as Christians, we're not allowed to look at evidence and just say, nuh-uh. We have to contend with it. Does it mean that this evidence presented by Robert Homestead will be the only evidence ever presented and it's done? I actually don't think that. He discovered, and his colleagues discovered more with Hebrew grammar. What if we discover more next week, next year, next century? I'm great with that. I'm great with that. It doesn't matter to me. But it does matter to this generation. And it does matter that you make sense. And it does matter that you at least entertain their questions and their ideas and their criticisms. Otherwise, those three answers I gave you before will be all your relationships with people outside of the church. They will shut you down and they will walk away because they don't care. They don't care what you say. They think you're just putting your head in the sand. Okay, so we have cases from Hebrew grammar. What about the criticisms that uh, this is just a ridiculously complex sentence and a hard sentence to understand in Hebrew grammar? The first thing to know is it is an absurdly complex sentence to understand and to work around, okay? But there are two very important approaches to addressing that argument, right? You have this, what appears to be this giant run-on sentence in three verses, and Paul does it in entire books. But anyway, so, so you have this, and it becomes complicated, okay? The first, the first approach to arguing this is the outside source approach. This idea of a restrictive relative clause and dependent temporal clauses and all this stuff is actually very common to ancient writings, but more specifically to ancient creation narratives. Let's look at the first one. The first one is the Enuma Elish, okay? And I want you to see the, the three verses, if you will, that they give us, and I want you to see the structure is exactly the same as what I'm offering you for Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And I'll take another water if somebody wants to get me one. Okay. <laughs> Dependent temporal clause. When on high, heaven was not named, and the earth beneath a name did not bear. The earth beneath didn't bear a name, right? Goes on. That's the dependent temporal clause. Here's the parenthetical information. Primeval apsu. Say that with me. Apsu. It sounds fun, right? That's fresh water, by the way. Was their progenitor. So life came from fresh water, life-giving Tiamat, salt water, the bearer of all, water again, their waters together they mingled, no cane break yet formed, no marsh discoverable, when of the gods none had appeared, names were not born, destinies not decided. Is that just an awesome thing? I have no idea what that's talking about, but we're going to go on, okay? Parenthetical information, but main clause, here it is. Thank you, sir. Main clause, the gods were given shape within them. Uh, la, Lamu and La Amu. Yeah, there we go. I'm, I'm sucking at this. Made to appear names they bore. Okay? So let me go back two slides to the intro. Two slides, guys. Not the last one. When on high heaven was not named and the earth beneath a name did not bear. Now let's go back to that third slide. The gods were given shape within them. Lamhu and Lahamu, whatever, made to appear names they bore. Do you see how that makes sense in one sentence with the parenthetical ideas here? The, everything in the middle was just telling you extra details, okay? But all of that is telling you one idea. Okay, so this is the exact same structure as Genesis 1, 1 through 3 in ancient writing. As complicated as we might think that is, it's right there. Now let's go to another ancient myth. The Akkadian Astrahasis. Okay, first one. Dependent temporal clause. When the gods, like men, bore the work and suffered the toil. Parenthetical information. The toil of the gods was great. The work was heavy. The distress was much. Next one. The seven great Anukai gods were making the Iggy, whatever, lower gods, suffer the work. Trust me, when I get to reading this stuff in my office, it just makes, I don't even know what to say about it. It just sounds dumb, right? Let's go back to the first one of those. When the gods, like men, bore the work and suffered the toil, now the third one. The toil of the gods was great. The work was heavy. The distress was much. 
You can see the sentence making sense, right? With parenthetical insertions in between. Same structure as Genesis 1, 1 through 3 in ancient Hebrew, Akkadian, and um, I can't remember the other language. But anyway, in, in these ancient languages, it's how they structured things, okay? Next one. The Assyrian Carrefour. That one, finally some, finally some English people wrote it. Okay. When heaven had been separated from the earth, the distant trusty twin, next one, and the mother of the goddess had been brought into being, when the earth had been brought forth and the earth had been fashioned, when the destinies of heaven and earth had been fixed, when trench and canal had been given their right courses, and the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates had been established, Fine, main clause. Then Anu, Enlil, Samos, and Ea, the great gods, and the Anukai, the, uh, the great gods, seated themselves in the exalted sanctuary and recounted among themselves what, <laughs> what had been created. Okay? This is a very complex sentence structure. You're all looking at me like, I don't care, Nathan. Well, I'm just trying to point out how we get to an understanding of Genesis 1, 1 through 3, that says God had multiple beginning stages for his creation. And it justifies all this idea of an old earth, okay? All those are fine. What's the criticism of that? Those aren't the Bible. We don't care, Nathan. It's the Bible. It doesn't matter. It's just nonsense. So what? Okay, let's go to the Bible. And guess how far we have to get before we find the exact same type of dependent clause, the very next chapter, Genesis 2, look at this. Genesis 2, 4b through 7. So for people to say this is so rare in Hebrew is for them to not read because it's not rare. It happens hundreds of times without exception. When the Lord God made earth and heaven, parenthetical statement. Now, no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet to grow, since the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Main clause, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Now, do you see how that makes sense? It's just a simple thing. You make a statement, it's dependent on things, but you make a statement, you give all of this parenthetical information, and then you come back to it. Now, let's go back to that Genesis 1, 1 through 3 slide that's way back, guys. I'm sorry, I didn't put it there. And see if you cannot understand how this makes sense. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, when it happened, Whatever that period was, not about what happened before, not about the material that came from nothing before, because it did come from nothing at some point. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth being formless and void, do you see what that just does to us? Right away in language, it says something preexisted when God began to create the heavens and the earth. Do you see it? It's just a simple way of saying it. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, oh, by the way, that thing that he was creating was formless and void. It didn't say it didn't exist. It just said that it was formless and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the wind of God was fluttering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So if we put these together... This in, this insert, uh, the, uh, the introduction and this main clause, we get this. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, God said, let there be light and there was light. And this is what we're trying to understand. When God started, what does he start with? He starts with light. He starts by changing everything and putting it into his framework by saying, and there's light. All of that gives us justification when we're talking to the world about an old earth and it doesn't deny the idea of a young earth. But it helps us to understand things. And by the way, it doesn't come from just people's opinion. It comes from facts about language. It comes from ancient writings that do the same thing and then it parallels the very same Bible using this kind of sentence structure and clausal statements. I know, heady, intellectual kind of stuff that you're like, I was out of English years ago and I never wanted to go back. I get it. I get it. But for the sake of people who are struggling in this world, we must go back. 
we must go back. So if tomorrow science comes out definitively and says, just like they know we breathe oxygen, (laughs) just like they understand that we're orbiting the sun, if they come back definitively and state these things, what are you going to do? Are you going to hold to an idea that the world, what if they come back and say that the earth is just like that, 13 billion years old? What are you going to do? Are you going to hold to your position? Are you going to hold to your position because you think the Bible says that? Are you going to modify your position because the Bible doesn't say what you think it says or doesn't have to say what you think it says? Do you understand where I'm going with this? If there is proof, it is not relinquishing your Christian faith to change. It is studying better and understanding something in a more, uh, a more advanced way to get there. There is nothing wrong with this. There is nothing wrong with it at all. Now, another slippery soap fallacy, which I told you last week. Does it mean that if you accept an old earth that it automatically means you arrived here through the process of evolution, and you came from monkeys. Jerry Clust may have, but not the rest of you, right? I love you. I haven't been able to pick on Jerry for a while, so I just wanted to throw that one in there while we're here. It doesn't mean that, and here's why it's really important that you know this. That's another slippery slope fallacy. A lot of Christians want to say, if you compromise in one thing, you're going to compromise in everything. That's just, that's total nonsense. It's total nonsense. And this is not, according to Hebrew grammar, it's not a compromise. According to Hebrew grammar, it's not a compromise. That may be challenging. It was for me. It definitely was for me. Am I uh, sticking my heels in the sand and nothing will ever change and convince me otherwise? Nope. Because again, I I don't think it matters in the ultimate grand scheme of things. But when people are arguing this, Don't let people who believe in a a long-term earth or in an old earth stop you from showing them the Bible. The Bible supports that idea. You can make ground. You can explain this. So when you engage with somebody who says, I think you Christians are crazy and full of it. When somebody looks at you and says, That they just believe everything that you say is just a bunch of opinions that you want to force down other people's throats. You can actually have an informed conversation. You can talk to people on a real level. Now, some of you might be saying, I don't need this, Nathan. I had this response this week. I'm never going to talk to somebody like this. I'm never going to talk to somebody who's dealing with this. I haven't in my entire life. Why would I start now? And all I did with that conversation with that person was to remind them this. Yeah, you haven't, but your grandchildren might have these questions. And what are you going to do then? And it was awesome because the response was, oh, yeah, I could have that conversation then. Just because you haven't had this conversation, just because you haven't had to deal with these kinds of things now, doesn't mean you won't deal with these things. I'm raising four daughters that although I'm trying to homeschool them and indoctrinate them my way... (laughs) Anyway, that was a joke. But anyway, although, although I am trying to see them understand things a way that I believe to be 100% truth, they live in a real world. They do. And they're being told all kinds of things. What am I going to do with that? I'm just going to go, well, it doesn't matter. They will hold my faith if I just pray hard enough. No. I don't hold my faith because my mom and dad prayed hard enough, and I'm pretty sure they prayed hard, right? That faith is held because we debate things, we talk about things, we discuss things. It's our responsibility now, church, to be these people. How many of you, with a show of hands, were shocked or surprised by the answers that the one person gave to the questions I asked? Raise your hand. Shocked or surprised by those answers? I'm glad. I'm glad few of you were shocked and surprised. How many of you are willing to be equipped to actually talk to people like that, though? I hope it's way more than that. Because you need to be. You need to be. 
people are having crisis of faith and crisis of meaning and crisis of understanding in all of life. They're struggling with literally everything that's going on, and Christians are not giving them sound answers, all because we probably look at it and go, that's way too deep for me. I don't care. I just want to tell them Jesus loves them. They don't e- they're not even close to Jesus yet. They don't even believe in theism yet. They're arguing way different things. We've got a lot of ground to cover, church, if we're going to actually be of influence and impact with this generation. Is that clear? Do you understand that? This requires a lot of effort. So this is what we see in the scripture when we hear things like, let's reason together with one another. You can go ahead and get the kid. We got to reason together with people. We've got to get down in the muck and the mire. And then, and then we've got to do this. And I love this. We've got to be wrong sometimes. And we've got to stand our ground when we feel we're right. But we have to do all those things in love. I'm having a, a conversation right now with, with a friend. Uh, and, and we're talking about these issues because we hold different views. And you know what I love about holding different views and discussing these matters? What I love about it is that this is exactly how life should be. This is what love is. This is what relationship looks like. We go, I disagree with you. And you go, awesome, I disagree with you. But we don't sit there and throw stuff at each other. <laughs> I mean, if it was Isaac, I'd throw ketchup packets at him. But anyway, but we, don't, we don't throw stuff at each other. What we do is we go, cool, give me an argument. Let me give you a counterargument. You give me a counterargument. And you know what I found? I found in my life there are some arguments that I've, that I've engaged with that have taken 10 years, and they're still going, still thoughts to be uh, hashed out, still questions to be answered. I'm okay with that. I'm in this for the long haul. (laughs) I hope you guys are too. So we need to be engaging with these questions. We need to be engaging with this culture because there is a lot at stake. We are losing people in their faith and solely because we don't have good answers for these questions. Shame on us. Shame on us. But let me offer you this encouragement. There are answers and you can find them. And you can give them. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to explain it. I'm evidence of that. It does not take that. It requires you study and it requires you go. Okay? You can do this. Every one of us can do this. Think about your children. Think about your grandkids. And give it everything you've got in explaining these things. Or at least searching for the answers. Because they're asking. Amen.